everyone. Welcome to session five of our study of Esther. Today we're in chapter three and we're going to be discussing verses one through nine. And as we're going to see today, the plot thickens on our story of Esther and Mordecai with the introduction of the man called Haman. So let's read chapter three verses one through nine from the CSB. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadetha the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated, since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the pur, that is, the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, There's one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up, authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the official for a deposit in the royal treasury. So verse 1 begins with the phrase, after all this took place. Now this refers back to chapter 2, when Mordecai heard about a conspiracy to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And although it was risky for him, Mordecai did the noble thing and reported it. Now, four years have elapsed since Esther was made queen, and here in chapter 3, we're introduced to Haman, one of the king's royal officials. Now, to me, it appears as though the author is making a correlation between chapter 2 and chapter 3. He's making a correlation, I believe, between the fact that Mordecai revealed a plot to assassinate the king, which is truly a noble act of bravery, worthy of recognition, yet receives no acknowledgement. And this man Haman, an evil, manipulative glutton for power, is elevated to the level of a prime minister of sorts, above every other official in the province. Mordecai's actions were selfless. Haman's selfish, yet Haman is the one who gets rewarded. At first glance, it seems like evil is being rewarded and righteousness ignored. And isn't that reflective of our culture today? It seems like those who manipulate people in the system who promote themselves at the expense of others continue to gain power and influence, while those who stand for goodness and integrity are passed over, shouted down, or ignored? It's discouraging when evil seems to win. But not so fast. If we want to empty our minds and hearts of this discouragement, doubt, and disillusionment, then we need to fill them up with God's word. So I'm going to take a moment to read some passages of scripture to you, and they're going to be about good overcoming evil. Listen carefully and intently 
and let them be an encouragement to you, as they are to me. Romans 8.28 God works everything for the good of those who love him. 1 Corinthians 15.57 God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.4 Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Romans 12.21 We don't have to be overcome with evil. We can overcome evil with good. Romans 8.37 We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. John 1, 5, light cannot be overcome by darkness. 1 John 5, 4, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And a beautiful real world example of light overcoming darkness is the story of the Upperman High School. The Upperman High School football team was scheduled to play the Stone Memorial High School. And they had a tradition of praying on the field after each game. But after some complaints from a secularist organization, the school district told the coaches that they were no longer allowed to lead the students in prayer. The secular institution tweeted out, a great win for church-state separation. So the fans and students, they took over. After the game, players, students, and fans all voluntarily gathered on the field in droves to give honor and glory to God, and to pray, just as they always had. Light will always overcome darkness. So what is the darkness that Haman is trying to introduce? I mean, who exactly is this man Haman, and what is the nature of his animosity between him and Mordecai? Well, verse 1 says that Haman is an Agagite. Now, historical records indicate that there was a province in Persia called Agag, So this could just mean that Haman is from that province. But many Bible scholars believe that Haman is a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites and the Israelites were ancient enemies. Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19 says that when Israel was leaving Egypt and they were worn out and weary from their journey, the Amalekites attacked them from behind and cut off those who lagged behind. It says the Amalekites had no fear of God. So God commanded the Israelites to blot out the memory of the Amalekites. In Exodus 17, verses 8 through 13, the Amalekites attacked Israel and Moses told Joshua to take some men and go fight them. Now, while they fought, Moses stood on top of a hill with the staff of God in his hand. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning the battle. But when he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses grew tired, Aaron and Hur held his hands up until sunset, and the Israelites defeated them. In verses 14 through 16 of Exodus 17, the Lord says, I said to Moses, I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven, and the Lord will be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. So when Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, he wasn't just standing up for himself, but for his people. And I found it interesting that Mordecai advised Esther when she was brought to the palace not to reveal the fact that she was a Jew. But here in verses 3 and 4, when the other members of the royal staff asked Mordecai why he didn't bow, he told them he was a Jew. 
I mean, why did he tell Esther not to do something that he did himself? Well, this is purely speculation, but I can tell you, and I'm sure you know, there is no accounting for the protective instincts of parents for their children, particularly of a father for his daughter. I mean, I don't mean to discount sons, but I can attest to the fact that the daddy's little girl mentality never goes away, even if daddy's little girl is grown and off on her own. So there's that. But we also must consider God's sovereignty in all of this. I love what Beth Moore says. She says, God isn't just the master of time, but of timing. And God's timing is always, always perfect. It wasn't the right time for Esther to reveal her identity, but it was the right time for Mordecai to reveal his. And once again, we see Mordecai putting himself at risk for the sake of doing the right thing. He refused to bow and pay homage to an enemy of his people, who God himself pledged would be enemies with each other from generation to generation. John Piper refers to this as a Mordecai moment, a particular moment in a person's life when they are essential to the advancement of God's plan. Now, I'm not saying that there are times that were not essential. I mean, God has chosen to reveal and administer his plan through his children. We are essential to the Father in the fact that he sent his son to die for us. And Jesus willingly came so that we might live eternally with him. But I also agree that there are times when God places us in a particular setting with a group or a, 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 pe- or a person in order to minister to them in a particular way, to speak a word or perform an action that helps to move his plan for that person forward. I've experienced this in my own life. I've gone to a Bible study or to church with something specific weighing on my heart or I was wrestling with a certain decision and then someone will make a comment on a particular passage of scripture and it's exactly what I need to hear in that moment as if it came directly from God through them to me. And when those moments happen, I find myself so thankful to God for that person. I thank him that they were so willing to be used by him that they acted out of obedience and spoke that word or performed that action that God laid on their hearts to do or say. Because of that action or word, my relationship with the Lord was strengthened. May we be ready for those Mordecai moments. May we be humble and sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading and have the courage to speak or do what it is that God is leading us to do. Because it may just be pivotal to God's master plan. Mordecai could have given up. I mean, he got no thanks or recognition for revealing the assassination plot. Why should he stick his neck out again? But for Mordecai, he did the right thing because it was the right thing to do. So, of course, the men who heard Mordecai was a Jew told Haman to see if he would do anything about it. And in verse 5, when Haman saw Mordecai not bowing or paying homage, he was filled with rage. He was so angry he wanted to kill Mordecai. But when he found out Mordecai was a Jew, he wanted to destroy all of them throughout the entire kingdom. Now, most scholars agree that this would have also included the Jewish exiles who had returned to Jerusalem. It's interesting how Mordecai's actions prevented a murderous plot against the king in chapter 2, and here his actions provoked a murderous plot against his own people. I mean, doing the right thing can be complicated sometimes, can't it? 
things don't always turn out the way we think they will. But we must remember Job 42.2, my husband's favorite verse that says, God's plans are never thwarted. This not only applies to the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, but it also applies to us today. You see, Haman's threat to the Jewish nation also threatened God's plan for future redemption. It was a threat against our own Christian heritage. If Haman's plan to destroy the Jews was successful, then God's salvation story, brought through the descendants of Abraham, would have come to an end. God chose to bring Messiah through the genetic line of the Jewish people. That is what is so important about this account. It's not just a book about saving the Jews. It's about God preserving the plan of salvation, which affects all of us. I think here is where we see the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God protected the Jews in order to bring salvation through Jesus. Some people think the Old Testament is no longer relevant. But you can't truly understand the New Testament without understanding the Old. God saved them so that he might save us. And in verse 7, it says that in the first month of Nisan, Haman cast the purr. Now, purr is the Persian word for lot. Casting lots was a traditional way of seeking divine guidance. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So Haman consulted astrologers and false gods to determine the most opportune time to set his plan to kill all the Jews in motion. And when they cast the lot, it fell on the twelfth month, which was eleven months later. So God gave the Jewish people 11 months to prepare themselves and for God to put his plan in motion. Now, what's interesting is the fact that Haman cast the lot in the first month, the month of Nisan, which was also when the Jewish nation celebrated Passover. So while the Jews commemorated God's deliverance from the Egyptians, Haman was planning their destruction. So Haman's got the plan set. He's got the timing set. Now he just needs to get the king on board. So how did he convince the king to go along with his plan? Well, he used the same tactics the devil uses. Warren Wiersbe says that Haman personified everything that God detests in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. He had arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plotted wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirred up trouble among brothers. Just look at how Haman approached the king in verse 8. He said, There's an ethnic group scattered throughout the kingdom who keep themselves separate. They have different laws and do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now notice Haman did not specify which people group. He spoke in vague half-truths. Just because Mordecai didn't bow to Haman did not mean that all the Jews were breaking the king's laws. Haman was using anecdotal evidence to impugn an entire ethnic population. It's dangerous to make assumptions based on anecdotal evidence, isn't it? So he speaks in half-truths, and he appeals to the king's pride. It's not in your best interest, he says. Basically, if you're going to be a good king, then you better make sure to keep everyone in check. But were the Jewish people really disobeying the king's laws? In Jeremiah 29, 7, 
God told the Israelites that they should seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which he carried them into exile, to pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, then they too will prosper. Haman also appealed to the king's greed. He offered to pay 375 tons of silver into the royal treasury. Commentators say this amount is roughly two-thirds of the amount of the entire royal treasury, a tremendous sum. Most likely, some of this amount would have come from the plunder of the Jews who were to be killed. You see, Haman was a man of the world. Therefore, his goal in life was to indulge his own desires. And as, natural, and as is natural for human beings, his desire was for power, authority, prestige, and notoriety. Haman wanted his life to be significant. And on some level, I think that's what everyone wants, to be significant. We want our lives to mean something. But wanting your life to be meaningful is not a bad thing. The problem comes in the method and motivation. Haman's only motivation was feeding his own pride, his ego, his selfish ambition. And when pride and selfishness are fed and nurtured, it can cause people to do despicable things. Haman's anger at one man not bowing grew into rage at an entire people group. And suddenly, murdering an entire ethnic population seems reasonable. This is what happens when lust for power and control goes unrestrained. Murder becomes acceptable. But as I mentioned earlier, wanting to be significant is not bad, as long as our method and motivation is centered on the right thing. When we accepted Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we became children of God and heirs to his kingdom. We are dearly loved and are counted as worthy to come before our God in heaven with boldness, confidence, and freedom. Our lives have value because we bear the image of the one who created us. And if our motivation is to please our Father in heaven, then whatever we do for him brings him glory and therefore is significant. I believe God created us with an inner desire for meaning and accomplishment in life because he is the only one who can fulfill it. I believe his intention is that our desire for meaning and fulfillment will lead us to him. Because if God isn't a part of what we're doing, then we're just like a hamster on a wheel. That hamster may be moving really fast. He may be working really hard, expending a lot of energy, but he's not going anywhere. So in closing, our challenge for the week is, what gives your life meaning? What gives you purpose? If we make God a part of what we do, then that is when we make true progress in life. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.